Jesus, um, oh, you were moving. You were at work. You were accomplishing your ends through and despite your people in ways that we cannot even see. So Lord, help us to wait such that our eyes are opened and not so distracted and focused on all of the shiny new things of the world that we can be still and know that you're God, even as we step out in faith and trust that you are. Lord, thank you for the gift that is waiting and for the gift of yourself. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, as Bryce and Danny have both already mentioned this morning, Advent is this reorientation. It is a reorientation toward remembering when we are, where we are, who we are, and whose we are in this grand story of redemption. The Old Testament people of God we refer to as Israel or as in, for Isaiah's sake when we, when we go through it today, um, they're, they're Israel, Judah. The Old Testament people of God were looking forward to the advent of God's rescue, both from exile, but also the ultimate rescue from sin, from brokenness, from oppression. They didn't know it, but they were waiting for God to enter into human history as Jesus Christ. We, on the other hand, as God's New Testament people, i.e. the church, we are not waiting for that because that's already happened. Thank God. That is a beautiful gift that we can look back and say, hey, you know what? Israel's waiting was not in vain. God delivered not just what they were hoping for, but way, way beyond what they could have imagined or fathomed. So our waiting is not in vain either. Our waiting for God, for, for, for Jesus to return, to make all things new, is not in vain. And so we're going to be in the book of Isaiah for all of Advent this year because in looking at how Isaiah encouraged God's people to, to wait for him and wait for his rescue helps us to, to know what that looks like for us as we look forward to Jesus' second coming, the second advent. So just to give you some context about the book of Isaiah, I, it, it really models, and the way that you can divide this book into kind of two chunks kind of models or epitomizes one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes, which is that the gospel afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. You see, in verses, or sorry, in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, we see an affliction coming because Israel, because God's people had become way too comfortable. And not, not, that, not that being comfortable is bad. It's actually quite good. But not if we're rooting our comfort in our circumstances more than our dependence on God. You see, Isaiah was trying to tell Israel and Judah, these two kingdoms that are both God's people but had been split up um, from other events in the Old Testament. Isaiah was trying to say, and kind of like grab them by the lapels and say, wake up! You are placing your hope in things that are not lasting. They wither and fade, and as a result of it, you are far from God. And God says through Isaiah, I'm going to take away those things. Like a spoiled child, you would take away their toys because they're not stewarding them well. Because the gifts that God has given Israel are all intended to be for the good of the nations. They're not ours just to keep and to hoard. We made the gifts our God instead of the giver. But then, 
we see starting in verse, or sorry, in chapter 40, which we're going to talk about today, we see God offering comfort to the afflicted. You see, the Assyrian Empire had just rolled through or was about to roll through the, the nation of Israel. But God, because of this king named Hezekiah, who had actually kind of, you know, pulled his head out of his rear long enough to realize, oh my gosh, I should, like, we should depend on God. He's better than all these things we're depending on. God said, you know what? It's, it's not going to happen to you in your lifetime. And Hezekiah, his response was basically, oh, thank God I won't be around for that. Which on the one hand, you can kind of understand, right? But also, how selfish. And this is a king of God's people. He's supposed to be representative of, of this trust and dependence. And it just shows that even a broken clock can be right twice a day, but it's still a broken clock. And we need God to intervene, intervene far more directly for our rescue. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about quite yet. He's actually projecting into the future. He's saying when the Babylonian Empire comes in and takes everybody else away, after Hezekiah is dead and gone, let me comfort you. You see, he's, he actually leads with when you are wondering if God is even there anymore while you are waiting and it feels like you've been waiting forever. Here's your hope. So I'm going I'm to walk through this a little bit out of order from the, from the verses. I'm going to start with verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read this again even though Bryce previewed it for us. But these three verses, I, I'm convinced, are like the, the crux of this this passage we're talking about, okay? Because it exposes, Advent exposes all of our false comforts. It says, a voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This kind of poetic language is, is describing and, and, and reminding God's people that it's not lasting, the grass. Anything created, including people, we don't last. We are mere mortals. We are not eternal. We will die someday. If you've, we've been more reminded of our finiteness and our weakness during this pandemic than anything, any other time in our lives, most of us. But everything good also ends up just fading. It's the beauty becomes less satisfying over time. The shiny new has worn off. One of the, my favorite parts about uh, paternity leave so, well, I was going to say paternity leave so far, but like uh, the season of having our second son, Deacon, is actually being able to spend a, a lot more time with uh, our older son, Ransom. And over my paternity leave, we got to, build a lot of Legos. Um, now, most of you who've been like, hey, how's it going? Are you feeling rested? Like, I'm talking about building Legos. And you're like, yeah, we heard you. We heard you the first time, Brad. Um, but I love Legos. Like, it's the one toy I had growing up that I'm like, I was so excited that my mom kept. She didn't keep my expensive baseball cards, unfortunately, or else I would have a lot less student loan to pay off. Um, but the Legos were still awesome. And I'm, we, we didn't just build the ones that we've gotten for Ransom since then, but we've built some of my old ones, like some classics that we can totally talk about afterwards if you want, because I like that kind of thing. But all my old Legos, it's very clear which are the old pieces and which are the new pieces, right? The old pieces are dusty because I'm too lazy to like clean out the dust between the little dots on there, because like who wants to do that? I did it sometimes, but not enough. Um, but they like crack. 
now, and they're discolored. You have to be really careful with them. Like the gray pieces actually look a little bit more brown than gray. The white is off-white or maybe even speckled with something that I don't want to know what it is, right? But it's not, and it's not even just the pieces, but like the physicality of them either. In putting together some of my old sets versus some of the new ones that I'm doing with Ransom, the old sets are like, like, wow, these are, the design is actually much more rote and boring. The newer stuff, it's like, it's creative. It's actually kind of brilliant how things are interlocking and Ransom and I would play this game of, of like, oh man, what do you think this is? Like, well, you wouldn't know as you're building it until suddenly, oh, cool. And we would have this moment together. I'm now sending my old Legos and putting them in the mail to my brother because uh, some of them were his and I just didn't tell him that I had them. Um, but also because I was really okay with it because they just weren't as satisfying. They were faded. They were, I mean, cracking and withering. You could make an argument that, you know, etymologically they're pretty parallel and similar. Um, but I'm, we're sending them to, to my brother and his son, Ransom's cousin, so that they can enjoy it. But I was struck by how okay I was and with something that I had been like so looking forward to doing with Ransom. It withered and faded. And the reality is that until Christ returns to make all things new, everything, everything new is destined to wither and fade. Relationships, things, experiences of the mountains. How, if, you've, if you've moved here within the last couple of years, how long did it take you? Can you remember how long it took you to take for granted the view? Never mind the, the ridiculous irony that is that actually moving here and living here means you probably go to the mountains less than when it took you a long time to travel here. It withers and it fades. But for most of us, the withering and fading that we most stubbornly refuse to accept isn't the satisfaction with material things, right? Because most of us, you're going without some material things so you can just afford to live here and go camping on the weekends, right? It's not that. It's actually more, much more this, this soul-crushing fatigue of having to constantly reinvent yourself. Now, here's what I mean by that. Now, I want to I read a quote here from a theologian named Stanley Hauervoss. Because, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this because this has been something I feel like I've learned very much over the last year or two. I'm still trying to like understand how to wrap my head and my heart around this myself. So, Haravas says, the more affluent and privileged among us, i.e. Boulder County, have solved with a credit card most of our biblical needs like food, housing, and clothing. So we move on to assuaging personal needs the Bible doesn't give a rip about. Pause. Isn't it great when a theologian says, give a rip about? I appreciate him. For example, meaning-making, a purpose-driven life, balance, freedom from anxiety, or a sense of personal well-being. Fulfillment of desire becomes elevated to the level of need, and need gets jacked up to the status of a right. People are encouraged to believe that the purpose of being born is to be free to self-construct your life as you please. In other words, your faith is repurposed toward that end as well. Eventually, the burden of self-fabrication becomes unbearable. We discover that it's impossible to choose our way into a life worth living. It's ironic. I've been thinking about how much um, what he seems to be describing there is almost this kind of like pharisaical legalism. But it's not the kind of 
legalism that is normally clad in religious language or categories, it's a, a legalism of kind of secular self-improvement. And I don't care if you're a Christian or not, this is in the air that you breathe. It is everywhere. Another way of articulating it, a, a guy named Andrew Root, who wrote a book uh, called The Congregation in the Secular Age, he says, and you need to be not just some generic bland self, but a happy, successful, recognized self who's not spitting out water but riding the rapids, maybe even with style. You can never rest, but failing to keep up to over and over and over again create a distinct self is soul-crushing. It is a depression, a secular depression. This age is a depression, is the fatigue of being yourself. Our exile is not geographic like Israel's was. It's cultural. We are exiled in place. And that exile is defined by this kind of slow-growing despondency and fatigue of self-salvation. As much as any of the like most abusive or toxic kind of Christian fundamentalism you can, you can encounter in, in Christendom. But it's every bit as damaging and exhausting. I know some of you, some of you work so heroically on yourself to improve yourself as a person, as a spouse, as a, as a parent, as a Christian, as a entrepreneur, whatever that is. But you are also crushed under the weight of that responsibility. And if you are, then you're, being, you're actually enslaved to this idea of self-improvement. You're not freed by grace. And that is a frontier for the gospel to help you understand and realize that, you know what, your dignity, value, and worth, it's not dependent on how fast or if you even improve, improve at all. Maybe you will kind of, <clears throat> reigning in my language, uh, maybe you will struggle forever. Maybe that's a gift to depend on God. Not that you don't, you stop struggling but you start doing so from a place of grace. There are so many symptoms of this dynamic I'm trying to describe. Maybe you are, maybe you can think about a time recently when you, you felt really antsy. You know, like, like you're spinning your wheels in life and you're frustrated because you can't figure out like, what's the next thing? Maybe you're thinking kind of like, a, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson, is this as good as it gets? Maybe, maybe as I have heard almost everybody here, say at one point or another during the pandemic and articulate that you're struggling and that this pandemic is hard, but you also add on top of this, this crazy, devastating, oppressive guilt because you know others have it worse than you. You know what? Maybe it's just okay to struggle. Maybe that's an invitation into something more. And here's the good news is that Advent is Israel's comfort and ours. Because at the end of verse 8, even though he says and reminds us that the grass withers, the Legos crack, the self-improvement project will fail, and the flower dies and fades, and the mountains become less important, and the new job isn't new anymore, the word of our God will stand forever. The phrase stand forever is a direct contrast. 
You don't wither, you stand. God's word stands. It doesn't cave to the pressure. It doesn't collapse under the weight of all the responsibilities you're carrying in here this morning. You don't have to leave them at the front door. You can actually bring them in here and let Jesus carry them. But it also is forever. There is always something new, a new beauty to, to ponder, to savor, to imbibe in, in the gospel and in God's love. Unlike the moving goalposts of self-improvement and the soul-crushing pressure of changing the world, God's promises stand forever. I love the way another commentator's name is uh, Alec Mottier. I think I pronounced that right. He says, Isaiah's message is the contrast between human transience and divine permanence, designed to affirm that what the Lord promises, he will most surely keep and perform. If, therefore, he promises universal self-revelation and shepherding care, nothing can stop these things from happening. What is that, then? There are two promises in this passage. The first is in verses 3 through 5 is God's presence. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This, this leveling, the mountains being made low, the valleys lifted up, all of this is basically to say like, God ain't even going to slow down. Like, there's no roadblock here. There's not even a speed bump. Those will get flattened too because that's how certain his presence is. That's how certain his promise to be with and among his people is. And there is nothing that can stop him, even the creation that he molded and shaped and formed from the beginning of the time itself. Nothing can stop God. 600 years after Isaiah is dead and buried, John the Baptist fulfills these three verses in particular because he said, he was saying to Israel, to God's people, hey, your waiting is over. The advent has come. Glory of the Lord is here right now. Come and see. That word glory is, is something we often say in church but we don't define very often. It means weight. It means significance. It's value, worth. It's what we're trying to do and, and to attain every time we try to achieve our own identity, uh, sorry, our own identity. And so what this is saying here with Advent is that God's worth, his very worth, God's person, his being, his essence, who he is, the height of that is the fullness of his personal presence descending to live among us. I couldn't have made that up if I tried. I've got a pretty active imagination. The incarnation, Jesus' birth, it heralds a recreation that we all receive now, not achieve as we go. It's so... It's so devastating when you realize how much we just, we tilt at windmills while the God of the universe chases us down with an invitation to rest in the free gift of his infinite worth. 
And that's what Christmas is. That's what we wait for. That's what we anticipate. That's what we get excited about. Because in offering himself to us, God gives us an infinite, eternal glory and worth that neither withers nor fades and is greater than, more satisfying than any we can hope to find in a job, in a new venture, in a spouse, in a family, in a follower count, in recognition public or private, or any other difference we make in the world, including how well or we may or may not love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not on the line because God put himself on the line. Some of you, this is a little bit of a, of, of a tangent, but I just want to kind of pull, like, this may either sound new or you might feel skeptical about this, in part because maybe you grew up in a church where you heard the gospel defined as Jesus died for your sins. And that's true. Like, do not hear what I'm not saying. Okay? How long has it been since you heard me say that? Um, it is just more than that. It is more than the imputed, our sin being carried to and taken to the cross and taken care of there by Christ. It is also, and this is the part that's left out, that is, that is previewed with the incarnation, is God's dignity, value, and worth. His righteousness, his status, his holiness, his beauty, his glory is then settled on us. Your bank account, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, socially speaking, culturally speaking, is not restored to a zero balance so that you can then build on that and invest where you can. You still got nothing. There's nothing to invest. Except now you have the infinite value of Christ's love for you. <clears throat> the second promise and this passage is in verses 9 through 11. It's God's greatness. His greatness. It says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Let me pause right there and just point something out. I said earlier that this is Isaiah speaking to God's people in exile in Babylon but he's naming them Jerusalem. He's saying cities of Judah. And it's because they are still God's people even though they are not geographic, geographically in God's place. They still carry with them because God has decreed it so. The dignity, value, and worth and their identity, who they are, is still God's people. Despite their rebellion, despite their failure, despite all of that, God loves. Let me continue. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you notice I underlined it on here because there's a contrast here that in the way that God uses his, you know, his arms and arm rules and his arms gather his people. It's a statement of both God's, God's greatness is mighty as well as tender, mighty as well as tender, strength as well as strong, strong as well as weak. And if you're in any doubt that his might is used for the sake of his care, one of the biggest surprises as I dove into this passage that I had never seen before, that just struck me like a ton of bricks, is the second half of, of verse 10. It says, behold, his reward is with him his recompense before him. 
It's so easy to read that line in particular and just kind of gloss over it. But it begs the question, what is his reward? What is God's reward? What is God's recompense? It's you. The greatest gift that God can give himself is you. Despite all of that, despite open, active rebellion, despite all of your failures and all the things that you, you omitted and feel like you, you never even got to because you couldn't get past all the other crap, you're worthwhile to God. Despite all that rebellion, despite all the foolishness, despite our kicking and screaming tantrums before God or straight up ignoring Him, He says, you are worth all the pain and heartache of rescuing you from yourself. You're worth it to me. That's the payment. It's you. Even as He gives you His presence, He's saying, that's what I want too. <laughs> he says, you don't understand it. I don't tolerate you. I love you. <laughs> Over paternity leave, I've, I've sometimes wondered, I've, 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 I've sometimes struggled to kind of respond to some of you when you've asked, like, has it, has it been good? Has it been restful? Because I'm like, uh, yeah. And even beyond just the difficulty of it being restful with a, with a newborn, um, I, I realized that it was the first time in the last 18 months that I really kind of started to, I, like that I had the space to allow myself to kind of grieve a little bit and, and to be sad about, God, a year and a half of just miserable crap. And I realized that what those 18 months had done was to basically bring me to the end of myself in ways that I didn't know I needed now, I've, I've been brought to the end of myself a lot, many times before, but every time it's just this new frontier of finding out that I'm finite or will fail no matter how hard I try. But in the last few weeks, one of the things that I've begun to appreciate, even as my false comforts and the things that I'd put my comfort in had been exposed, is all of that was actually a, an occasion for God's presence and goodness and greatness. You see, I think I can speak for all of us, but I don't want to project. I see failure as making myself unlovable. Like that is the consequence of failure, is that I am now more unlovable than I was before. But God sees my failure, my sin, my weakness, my limitation as to be explored frontiers of grace as an opportunity to show me new terrain of his love that he's had for me this whole time, but I was just stuck in one spot, spinning my wheels, and couldn't look up. That is why we wait. That is what Advent answers. It's to help us to see a new frontier of grace that we would never, we would never see if we were not sitting still and knowing that he is God. 
This is the last thing I want to say before we, we go to the Q&A. But all of this brings us back to the very beginning, to those first two verses in Isaiah 40. It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. This phrase, comfort, comfort my people, what's beautiful about it is it's actually, the, the repetition here we know is, is why it's, it, it's signaling that this is actually a Hebrew idiom, meaning to proclaim or speak directly into the heart with effect. And that sounds like, well, that sounds really complicated and a really weird way of saying, like, you're just hoping you, you, you encourage somebody, right? No, what this is saying is God is speaking everything I've been talking about this morning. That is the weight. Like, picture it as, a, as the Lego of all Legos, right? He is inserting all of this comfort into your heart right now. Because Isaiah says elsewhere that his, return does not, his word does not return void. This is, what I'm describing is not, please take comfort in if you choose to. It is, no, comfort is here. Comfort's already here. I am Emmanuel, God with us. The already comfort in any circumstance that is greater than every circumstance. It will work on you and, and you will you will taste it. It will do its work on your heart even if you don't feel it and even if you're not fully on board with it. This, is, this phrase is also in the form of what's called a plural imperative. In other words, this isn't spoken to one person. That's the, hence the my people part. It is a plural imperative. In other words, God's people receive and experience and taste and see that he is good. They receive his comfort through worship with one another. That's why we sing. That's why we sing and shout, maybe not from a mountaintop, but maybe from a building called Bridgetown, and I don't know why it's called Bridgetown because there are no rivers or streams anywhere near here. But God is bridging into our world even now, and he is speaking comfort into our hearts in a way that is utterly unique and distinct among his people when we are gathered in worship. And I'll tell you what, maybe... Maybe you're actually kind of glad that we're still wearing masks because then nobody can see that your mouth isn't moving when everybody else is singing. Maybe you're actually glad that nobody can ask you what's wrong because you're spent. And you know what? That's okay. Because somebody else is singing for you. Because you're, you're part of one body. And when we, are, when we struggle, when we are feeling that way, when, we, when waiting is hard, by the way, when's waiting easy? God carries us through his people. So here's the bottom line, and then I'll see what kind of questions we've got. Christmas, and this is what Christmas is. It proves that Israel's waiting is not in vain. And we have the benefit of hindsight then to, for us to know that our waiting is not in vain either. And while we wait, we now have more fuel than Israel did to rejoice while we wait, to worship while we wait, to wonder while we wait. I would rather be nowhere else. And it says we have no questions, so I'm going to pray, and we're going to transition to communion. Jesus, I, I confess I hate waiting. 
I hate waiting so much. I can't wait to give presents on Christmas. I can't wait to get presents on Christmas. I can't wait for anything. So much of that, Lord, is, is bound up in me in an anxiety that I doubt it will come. And that the longer I wait, the longer, the more sure it is that you won't deliver on your promise. And Lord, that's not true, to say the least. And so Lord, to whatever degree, and then some, we are experiencing the struggle, maybe the anxiety, maybe even the despair of having to wait for whatever it is we're waiting for, Lord. Whether that is just relief or a break, Lord, I pray that you meet us there to know and help us know and to taste and see that our waiting isn't in vain. And that even now, you are giving us a comfort and a peace that surpasses any and all understanding. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to depend on you more than and greater than anything else we have on offer in life. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.